Job chapter 1. I've recently been doing some, uh, some reading through Job and um, there are certain things that, that struck me in this the Lord led me to, uh, to share with you. Uh, I shared some of it on a Wednesday evening uh, prayer night, but I thought it'd be good to, to go a little more in depth with some of this stuff. I'm, I'll probably do a few sermons. It's a very short series. I don't want to work through the whole book of Job. It'll take us probably about a year the way I go. But I want to share a few uh, important sermons with you from this, looking at the life of Job and maybe contrasting it with um, Satan, who's the other main player in this, uh, this particular book. But read with me this morning uh, from chapter 1, verse 1 to 5. It says here, There was a man in the land of Uz, or Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and skewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-asses and a very great household. So that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses every one his day and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so. When the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you once again for your, your word. We thank you that you've preserved it for us in such a perfect fashion. And we pray that as uh, we read it this morning, I pray that as I speak, that you'd be speaking, Lord. I pray that I would speak your words only. I pray that your spirit would be working on our hearts, and even now that we would be ready to receive those words into, into our hearts, that we might grow as a result. Father, we thank you, Lord, that we have an opportunity here to be able to learn of you and be more like you. Father, we pray that you'd be glorified in this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The book of Job is a very interesting book. If you look at where it's positioned in the Bible, it's actually positioned in the poetry section. Positioned right just, just around where Psalms and, and Proverbs are. So you'll notice that that particular section, Job's in there. But the interesting thing about Job is that most scholars now believe that Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Probably the one that was written first. Because of the things that he's written in there uh, and the way it's written, the things that aren't mentioned as well as the things that are mentioned in it. So... It's very possible that when we read Job, <coughs> read Job <coughs> we're reading possibly the oldest book <coughs> predating Moses writing the Pentateuch. <coughs> and basically the book of Job deals with some really big issues that a lot of people struggle with in their lives. And one of the biggest issues it deals with is why do bad things happen to good people? Okay? And, and how do you deal with that? That's probably the biggest um, theme that it works with and the prime example that it uses is Job himself and the, the tremendous challenges that he faced throughout his life. The, if you look at the, the book of Job and you'll, if you work your way through it, you'll see there are a number of arguments going this way and that way and there's a lot of good doctrine in there 
But a lot of times you find doctrine, even though it may be right, can be misapplied to certain things. So a lot of times I'll be saying to Job, yeah, you know, God, you know, he, he does judge the wicked. True, God judges the wicked. But then they'll, they'll say to Job, you must have done something wrong for God to be judging you, which was obviously false. So it was a misapplication of good theology. It was putting theology in the wrong place. So Job has some friends, and some of you, if you, if you read the book, you might consider them. You don't want to have certain friends like that. But throughout it all, the Bible says that Job maintained his integrity. He didn't curse God. So even though he lost everything that, that he held dear to him, he basically didn't go to God and say, shake his fist at him and say, I want nothing to do with you anymore. Why did you let this happen to me? He never does that. So, let's look a little bit more at what's going on over here. Um, who went to the Mesopotamia exhibition while it was in Melbourne? Interesting, wasn't it? The Mesopotamia um, uh, exhibition um, went for a few months, and it basically was uh, in, 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 with artefacts and, and, and poetry and those sorts of things that they brought in, they allowed. They actually told a story about the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians who inhabited that area we call Mesopotamia, or that's called Mesopotamia. And there's one particular place, and, and if you've been there, you probably know where I'm talking about, where there was a seat at a particular, uh, uh, around about the middle of the actual exhibition, with a huge wall relief. Now, when in olden days, when they used to have wars and they wanted to commemorate what had happened and make people remember them. They used to actually carve in stone all figurines and they were actually telling the story a little bit like a comic book. Okay? So you have sections that were telling the story about what had happened and there was one particular place where there was a huge battle on this wall and you saw, you saw people with, uh, with spears and soldiers running in from one side and then you know, soldiers and, 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 and horses running in from the other side. And you could obviously see it was a battle taking place. And this wall relief was basically a recreation of what was already there. They'd recreated it and brought it to Melbourne. And it was telling a story about two armies that were coming together. And it was, when I read the inscription, it actually said at the bottom, a battle that had occurred between Assyria, the Assyrian army, and the Elamites. Okay? Now I knew... Off me with the Assyrian army. The Assyrians, a lot of stuff said in the Bible about the Assyrian army, but there's not much said about the Elamites. And I thought to myself, but I've read that name somewhere before. I know the Elam, Elamites or Elam is in the Bible. So I quickly jump on my, uh, my trusty Bible, typed in Elam. Go back with me to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10, look at verse 21 and 22. Now, most of us know who Shem is. Shem was one of Noah's children. And it says in verse 21, Unto Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth, the elder, unto him were children born. And the children of Shem, Elam, Asher, Aphaxad, Lud, and Aaron. Notice the first child there is Elam. 
After Shem, Ham, and Japheth left the ark, they and their, and their children basically spread out into different parts of the world and began to occupy various parts of the world. And the amazing thing is that a lot of their children became then the founding people of new cities and, and, uh, and nations. Okay, so you have here, see where it says Asher? Asher, the descendants of Asher were the Assyrians. And, and Assyria had a capital, capital or had a, a main city called Asher. And if you look at the first one, Elam, Elam was the forefather of the Elamites. So what was happening here? Well, basically, two of Shem's children, or the descendants of their children, were going to war with each other. And that actually makes sense. You know why that makes sense? It makes sense because Shem would have gone and occupied a certain area, and his children would have occupied areas that were, fair, that were in proximity to each other. So as their nations grew, as their families grew, and they became stronger and stronger, guess what? They would have started to encroach on each other's territory. So often we find the children of, of the, their forefathers actually became enemies of each other. Actually, if you go back, a lot of the Bible has fights happening between cousins and, and those sorts of things, and brothers and, and, and those, uh, those sort of things happening very often in the Bible. Okay? So basically, the Elamites were the descendants of Elam, while the Assyrians were the descendants of Asher. And it says, it says here in Job 1.1, there was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. So why did I tell you all that? Well, if you look at, go down one more verse in, uh, in Genesis chapter 10, look at verse 23. It says there, and the children of Aram was Uz, and Hol, and Gether, and Mash. So Uz was also a descendant of Aram. So, Shem had five sons. One of them was Aram. Aram had a son called Uz, and that region where Job came from was probably named after Uz, who was a descendant of Shem, or the grandson, particularly, of Shem. But where is it? Well, basically, it says, it gives, the Bible gives a number of clues to where it is. It tells us in Job 1.3 that Job was a man of the east. Okay, So we know it's that area or that region is in the east. It says that one of Job's friends, Eliphaz, in Job 4.1, was or came from a town called Teman. Now, Teman is in Edom. Okay? And it says also that, that that area had fertile pastures, that Job had many thousands of animals. They couldn't have been in the middle of a desert. It had to be someone that was very fertile. And it had at least one major city because Job, when he, when he started to suffer all the things that he suffered, was sitting in the gate okay, of the city. So this was a walled city where he, was, uh, where he came from or that was close to him. Now, where was us? Turn to Lamentations chapter 4, verse 21. Lamentations, just after Jeremiah, chapter 4, verse 21. It says there, rejoice and be glad. How are we going with that? 
Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, that dwellest in the land of Uz. Okay? So where was Uz? Well, roughly where Edom was, or Edom was in Uz. And Edom was pretty much modern-day Jordan, between Jordan and, and, and maybe a little bit into Iraq. So basically Jordan is where these people were, were from, and more than likely, Job was from Jordan, the Jordan area. Okay? But what does this tell us about the Bible? Well, the first lesson I want you to take away with you this morning is that the Bible, if you look at it as an historical document, is, has amazing accuracy. You can trust everything the Bible says when it tells you the descendants of you know, Shem and Ham and Japheth and where they went and what they did and their children. It's an amazing study in itself just to follow where these children went and the civilizations they started. And they became the founding fathers of different peoples that are still in existence today. So the Bible is amazingly accurate and it's a great study in itself for you to actually work your way through it and read some of those amazing histories that you find in Genesis, especially. Okay, let's look at what it says about Job first. So we know where he lives now. He lives, he lives living around Jordan. Job chapter 1 says, verse 1, There was a man in the land of Oz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Wow, that's a, that's a fantastic description of someone, isn't it? And look at verse 8. Go down to verse 8 in that chapter. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and skeweth evil? When God repeats something a few times, he definitely means it. And that's repeated again later on in the book as well. So it's three times God says that Job was upright, he feared God, he was perfect, and he, was, um, and he eschewed evil. You know something? If, when I die, or if the Lord doesn't take me and I, and I pass away over here, I'd love on my, on my tombstone to read this particular passage, that I, was, I walked perfectly before God, that I was upright, that I, I feared God and I ran away from evil. Wouldn't you love to have that as a description of your life? And if people, and, and maybe at your funeral, if people talked about you, I'd love for them to say, he was a perfect man. Now, what does it mean? We'll look at, we'll look at that in a second. But you know the amazing thing I find about Job? If Job was one of the oldest books written in the Bible, Mind you, he had no New Testament. He wouldn't have had any of the Psalms. He wouldn't have any of those things. Let's say he was one of the oldest books. How much of the word of God did he have to rely on to live? Think about that for a moment. We have the word of God from Genesis to Revelation. We have, or we know things that Job would never have known. The Messiah has come. We have the promises that have been given to us that Job never realised, never understood. And how do we compare to Job? Compare the resources that you and I have today with the resources that Job had. Job did not even have the word of God. And the Bible says that he was a perfect man, upright. He feared God. How did he even know? How did he know? 
Because I, I find it amazing with, the, with Christians today who have so many resources that we often fall on our faces so many times. We have so many things at our disposal, yet we live lives that are so timid and weak when it comes to the things of God. We're, we're almost fearful that the world is going to overcome us. And at the slightest problem that we have in our lives, it seems as if our faith comes crashing down around our ears. How fragile are we when we compare ourselves to Job? So this is an indictment against Christians. That with the resources we have, we should be spiritual, mighty people. We should, there's no excuse that we have as people, as the children of God, to be anything other than the warriors that God has called us to be. There is no excuse that we can give for sin in our lives. There is no excuse for us to draw back or to hold out on, on God because God has done so much for us. I mean, we remember the, the, the son that he gave for us and yet week by week we dabble with sin. And we put back the things of God. God may be calling us to, to serve in so many different ways and yet we say, oh, hang on God, I've got, I've got other things I've got to be doing. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm a bit busy over here at the moment or I'm consumed with that over there. And we hold off the things of God. Yet, when we compare ourselves to Job and what he had, we should be ashamed. The Bible says that he was perfect. Now, what does that mean? He was perfect. Well, it doesn't necessarily mean he was sinlessly perfect. In other words, he never made a mistake. For he himself admits in Job chapter 31, 33, if I covered my transgressions like Adam. In other words, he, he understood that he had sinned, that he had sinned. But he said that he, he didn't cover him up like Adam did and try to hide from God. He knew very well that he was a sinner and he was born with a sin nature like every one of us. Yet, the Bible says, when it came time to him, God called him perfect. What does it mean to be perfect? Well, basically, he lived a life habitually in line with God's standards. That was his habit. In other words, he consistently lived life day after day after day, not sinning. He was able to overcome the temptations that were, that were coming his way. He didn't give in to them. He was consistently strong and, and he wasn't deficient in any appreciable way. He wasn't deficient in his life. You see, there are many parts in our lives where if you, if you, if you opened up my life like a book... And you saw, oh, look, that, that section's fantastic over there. Oh, that section's pretty good over there. And that section's good over there. But hang on, hang on. You've got a section over there that's not quite right. And you've got a section over there that's not quite right. And there's a few things doing over there that need refining and need... You know, Job, if he opened up Job's book, it was all good. Consistently good. Job lived a victorious life without the Spirit of God dwelling in him permanently like we have. Without the word of God. So what does it mean that he lived perfectly? It meant that he lived by God's standards each and every day. And if, he, and if he'd made a mistake, he quickly realised what was going on and he quickly came back. If you would look at yourself in this context, how would you and I measure up 
this morning? How do we measure against that particular standard? Are there parts of your character that still need work? I'm sure there are. How well do you know yourself? And how well do you know your God? So that you can say that you walk perfectly before him. Should that be a goal of ours? You're right, it should be a goal of ours. That's the goal that we should have in our lives, to walk perfectly before God. There should be nothing that holds us back from that relationship that we should be having with him. It also says here that he was upright. Basically, it means that he was honest, he was honourable, and he was just. He was upright. He wasn't fallen down and broken like so many people we see around today. He was able to stand firmly on his feet, and when his integrity was tested, it shone through. It came out the other end fantastically well. He didn't, he didn't come across temptations and tests and then fall over each time they came across him. He actually learned from the test and became stronger as a result. His character was consistent. He was honest and sincere with what he did. There is too much insincerity in God's church these days. Too much insincerity. People who living lives one way when they, when they see other Christians and, and the way they behave, but yet when they're by themselves or when they're, when they're with, the, with the people in the world, they behave altogether differently. That shouldn't be the case. That's not living an upright life. When you live an upright life, you live consistently, whether it's in here, whether it's out there, whether it's in your families or whether it's with your friends at work or anywhere else. You live consistently upright which means you are honest with yourself and with God. Too many of us actually take our families and use our families as, as, a, as an opportunity for us to actually vent all our problems. Our families become the, the, the sacrificial lamb, in a sense, because we try so hard maybe when we're in church or we try so hard in certain situations, but when you're at home, you let it all hang out and you don't live the life you're supposed to live. Are you being totally honest with yourself this morning? Are you being totally honest with God? God can see your heart. He sees it. Sometimes we play a game where we think, God can't see what, what's really inside of me. I can hide it with the things I do on the outside. God knows your heart. God knows you and I better than we even know ourselves. And yet we play the game as if we can hide something from him. Job said, look, I, I, I know I've transgressed, but I, I don't hide my sin like Adam did, hiding behind the bushes somewhere. But is this the game that we play? Are we playing that game in our lives? Hiding from God, pretending to hide whether it's sin or whether it's some other deficiency that we have, whether it's doubts, whether it's fears, whether it's whatever. Are you being totally honest with yourself and with God this morning? Or are you playing the game? Where the next thing that comes along and you know the next temptation that comes along, you're going to fall for it. If you're in that mode of thinking, you're playing the game. And you'll be caught out. And God doesn't want his children to be playing games. I mean, I'd like my daughter to enjoy herself but not with things that are precious. I mean, I like my, my daughter enjoying her time with her friends, but I don't want my daughter playing around with the crystal vase. 
throwing it up and down in the air. How important is your relationship to your God this morning? And how are you playing with it? An honourable life. There's a um, definition that I found for living an honourable life and it means deserving, deserving or winning honour and respect. Bringing distinction and recognition. That's an honourable person. They deserve deserving or winning honour and respect and bringing distinction and recognition. You know something? We should be like that. You might say, hang on a sec, we shouldn't be winning honour and distinction for ourselves. Too right. Because your, your life and my life should be bringing honour and distinction to God. The life we live, people should look at our lives and say, not that I'm good or you're good, but they should say, what sort of a God does this person serve? That he lives in this manner. What's truly wonderful about living an honourable life is that we can win that honour, respect, distinction and recognition for our Saviour. The Bible says that he feared God. Psalm 111 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A person who fears understands authority. And the fear of God and the authority that he has over him as an individual. You see, I believe God is fully sovereign. Now, I'm not sure what you understand when I say that God is sovereign. God can do with me what he will. He has every right over my life. Because he owns me. My question this morning is, do you have the same opinion about God in your life? Or when things go wrong in your life, are you all too quick to complain that things aren't right? God can do with us as he will. And whatever he does, the Bible says he does for our benefit. But when, if God wants to discipline his children, the Bible says it's a good thing. Whatever he does with us, God has every right. Job understood that. And Job, even in the midst of his trials, never looked at God and said, you don't have any right to do this to me. Our culture hates authority. Our culture does not appreciate authority and has no fear in its eyes. In fact, it actually teaches children to throw away fear of their parents, of their teachers, and the authority in, in, in general, in society. Rebellion is commonplace in our churches, in our families, our government, and against God himself. And you can rest assured that someone who has no respect or honour for their own family, someone who shows no respect or fear for parents or grandparents, has no fear of God. Because if you can't show fear and honour and respect to those who are above you, who have authority over you, that you can see, you can rest assured that person has no fear of God who he cannot see. Yet our society is doing a fantastic job of destroying the the respect that children have for their parents. As children, the fear of discipline from our parents should prevent us from doing evil actions. I know I did when I was growing up. My father wasn't even saved. My parents weren't saved when I was young. Yet, my father's discipline in my life 
caused me to fear when I did something wrong. It caused me to think not just once, but more times than once, before I went and did something silly. And I did silly things in my life. But fear of discipline should lead us to live holy lives. There's a verse in, a verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, that says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You think that fear of God is an Old Testament thing? No, it's not. Fear of God is an Old and New Testament thing because the Bible is consistent all the way through. The Bible says that the children of God today, the sons of God, are to fear him as a father. Did you ever fear your father and getting a smack from him if he did something silly? Well, we should be fearing him the same. God can discipline us and has every right to. But that fear should cause us to live holy lives as well. The final thing that it says about... Um, about Job, it says that he eschewed evil. When did you last use the word eschewed? Eschewed. Eschewed. Eschewed is like running away from, avoiding it at all costs, not wanting anything to do with it. Job's fear of the Lord caused him to flee from evil. When he saw it over here, guess where he ran? That way. He ran away from it. He didn't play around with it. He didn't walk around it and have a bit of a look and say, oh, that's interesting. Look at that. Yeah. How often do we do that in our lives? We see a temptation and then we almost flirt with it. We decide, we can, look, I'm, look how strong I am. I can walk around it. I can perceive it. I can, I can touch it. Look, look, hasn't done anything to me yet. Look at that. Look at that. And before we know it, we're well and truly in it, consumed by it, fallen on our faces on the ground. And then we say, what happened there? Well, what happened was that you saw a banana peel on the floor. You know it's slippery. And yet you decided to walk right up to that banana peel and just to test whether it's slippery or not. And then when we fall over, we say, oh, what happened? The problem is you enjoyed the fall. That's the problem. Job's fear of God caused him to run away. If you saw a banana peel over there, he ran the other way. He wasn't going to trip, find himself falling over. And this is how we need to be with sin. You see sin? You see, you see a, a, something happening over there? that might be enticing to you, that you might be uh, lured in by, the smart thing to do is to walk the other way. Don't go to places. Don't be in places. Don't find yourself in places where you fall. You know, a lot of people are, have problems with sin in their lives because they're in a particular place at a particular time. And they find themselves in a particular place in a particular time because they don't bother to find out what they're doing on a regular basis. And then they find themselves there because they put no thought into the, the, the fight or the battle they're in and they find themselves, oh, look, look where I am again over here. Look at that. Bang, falling over. Yet if we had an ounce of thought, if we realised we were in a war, then like Job, we would eschew evil. The Bible says in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 22, it says, Flee youthful lusts. Flee. Run. 
What are youthful lusts? We all think we all know what youthful lusts are. Don't have to explain them all to you. It says, flee youthful lusts, but follow after righteousness, faith, charity, peace, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. What is your attitude to sin? Is it like Job? Do you hate it so much because God hates it? That you want nothing to do with it because it's the thing that sent your saviour to a cross. When we look at sin, we should hate it so much. The Bible says we are to hate no man, but you know something? The Bible says to hate sin because it sent your saviour there and he had to pay for you and I for our stupidity and our rebellious hearts. What's your attitude towards sin? Do you hate it with all your being? Or are you happy to play with it a bit here and there? Because it brings you enjoyment. Don't play with it. Don't desire it. Run away from it. Because in the end, it always has a sting. It always has something else attached to it that will bring you down. It says here as well, in Job 1.3, it says that Job was... A very wealthy man. Look at what it says in verse 3. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household. So that this man was the greatest of all men of the East. You reckon he was rich? Do you think he was rich, a rich man? Actually, when I, when I thought about him being rich and I liken it to today, you know, he he's, would have been like the Bill Gates of his generation. You know, when you look at Bill Gates, or who's, who's the richest man in the world? I don't know. I can't really think of Bill Gates. Warren Buffett or... Who's, sorry? A Mexican guy. Mexican guy, okay. All right, he's a Mexican guy. He's the richest guy on earth. Well, he's, Job was his equivalent of his day. The richest man, the greatest man of the East. He had so much wealth, right? He was richer than everyone else around him. You might say, oh, that's bad. He was rich. Well, he was rich, very rich. In fact, your wealth in those days wasn't measured by how much money you had in the bank. It wasn't measured by how much other things, you know, stocks and bonds and, and, you know, and shares that you had. When they measured your wealth, it was exactly the same way they've listed it down here, with your livestock. Because that livestock was income producing for you. If you had sheep, you could shear them. You could produce things with it. If you, had, if you had cows, you could have milk and you could, there's a production line going over there. But you measured a person's wealth by how much livestock they had. But also, when you had a lot of livestock, what else did you need? You needed people to look after all those livestock. So it says here that he had a very great household. That household wasn't just his kids. That household was all his servants, stewards and people that were managing all the affairs for him. This guy was loaded. He had, if you looked at him as a business, he was the biggest business that was going around. And he had a wealth of servants that were working for him. You know, it's interesting in the Bible that you find a lot of other godly men who were wealthy as well. The Bible says that in Genesis chapter 13, you have to turn there. Genesis 13, 2, it says that Abraham was very rich in cattle, in silver and in gold. Abraham, the greatest man of faith, was rich. And his nephew was rich as well. They were so rich together, they couldn't even live together. 
They had to separate because the land wasn't big enough to hold them. You know who else was rich? The people that supported Jesus' ministry. Look at, look at Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 verse 1. Luke 8 1 says, And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others, which ministered unto him of their substance. What does that mean? It means they funded him. They actually gave money for Jesus to do his ministry work. And look at the one that I'd never realised before was Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward. Who was Herod? He was the king. And if you were the steward of the king, guess what sort of a job you had? You managed all of his affairs. You were managing all of his assets. You reckon that would have been a highly paid job? Too right. The guy would have been absolutely loaded. Absolutely loaded. And his wife was a benefactor for Jesus. She was funneling money from her husband <laughs> to Jesus' ministry. Is that wrong? perfectly fine it's perfectly good so if someone tells you or someone teaches you and there are some people who say well you should be poor in order to be holy that's not true it's not true god doesn't call us to be poor god calls you to be whatever he's called you to be and some people are going to be more wealthy some people are going to be poorer some people are going to be in the middle there somewhere but the bible says whatever god has blessed you with you make sure you use that wisely and for his glory. And if God has given you certain abilities in business or otherwise, and God has called you to work in that business, if he's given you certain talents, if he's given you certain wealth, then use it for his glory. Job did. Job was the richest man in the, probably in the world at that stage, but he actually used it for God's glory. It didn't stop him from being perfect, upright, and a hater of evil. Just remember, there are certain principles in the Bible that should allow you to live a prosperous life or a life that thrives, not is always struggling. Because if you follow the Bible's principles, you'll be a good worker. You'll be honest. You'll save your money. You won't gamble it away. You'll invest wisely. You'll be seen in society as generally a person who's good to have as an employee. And if people see you as an honest and hard-working person, you will generally do well. And that's what the Bible calls us to be. Okay, let's have a look at what it also says about Job. Look at verse 2. It says, And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. They had ten children. John and Kelly, you've 
just, we've got one so far. So okay. <laughs> Look at verse 4. It says, And his sons went and feasted in their houses everyone his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. So Job said, It may well be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Job sought to preserve and protect his family. Job, we find here, intercedes for his family. He loved God so much, but he loved his children as well. It says that he was a perfect and upright man, and no doubt Job throughout his life would have taught his children to be likewise. There is no doubt about that. He would have taught his children to live uprightly, to live godly lives, to run away from evil. But the other thing as well is, no doubt, his children would have been wealthy as well. When you're the children of, a, of the wealthiest guy around, guess what you're going to have a lot of? Money. You're going to have a lot of assets. And we find here that all these sons had already been set up with their homes. Each of them had their own home. And no doubt, that probably helped along the way. He probably helped them set themselves up. But it says here that they it says here that they went and feasted in their houses, everyone his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. Sisters, by the looks of it, were still living at home with dad. Probably weren't married at this stage. But the boys had their own had their own homes. And what were these people what were these kids doing? Well, from what it seems to me. And some people look at this and say, oh, they feasted. They went and they were getting drunk all the time. Well, it doesn't actually say that. It says they went and feasted in their homes, each one his day. And I get the feeling they were celebrating their birthdays. They were probably celebrating their birthdays, inviting all their brothers and sisters to come along and celebrate the day with them. Job didn't arrive, though. Job probably was over the partying days. But Job, there is no doubt that Job would have been blessed by his children. He would have loved the fact of seeing his children grow up and settled in the world and every parent wants to see their child settled and established in the world. They had, had homes of their own. He, he probably would have enjoyed the fact that they were able to feed themselves and been able to celebrate in that way as well. And he probably would have loved the idea that 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 all the brothers and sisters were getting along. There was unity in his family. But Job said in his heart, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And it says that he, it says that he, he called them in. It says there, there that he sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. Remember Job feared God. Remember that he loved his family as well. And as such he was concerned, not just for his own standing before God, he was concerned for what? For his children standing before God. He wanted to see his children living godly and upright lives. That was a huge concern of his because he hadn't seen anything. The Bible says that he thought to himself, 
just in case my kids have done something in their hearts against God, I want to do this. He was concerned for them. And what was he doing? The Bible says that he was interceding for his children. In other words, he was acting like a priest. A priest's job was to bring a sacrifice and offer it on behalf of the people who were sinners. Job was the priest of his own family. He was actually offering sacrifices for his children. Now remember at this stage there was no Levitical priesthood at that stage. But the Bible says that Job was interceding for his children. And it's a bit like this. If you love your children and you allow them to go to someone's home for a party, okay, a good friend of yours, and you find out that your children have broken a very expensive vase in the home, in these people's home, while they were jumping around and doing what they do. How would you feel as a parent? You'd feel responsible? Yeah. That's what Job was feeling. Job understood his responsibility to God. And even though his children were all grown, he still felt a sense of responsibility. I mean, they were their own men. But still, still he thought to himself, if they've sinned, I want to intercede for them. I want to make sure that if they have broken some, something with respect to God's laws, I want to make sure that I make restitution for that. So he was ready to jump in and intercede for his children. It's not something we, we hear very often these days, that people intercede for someone else. It says here that he was doing it continually. And probably people have said to him, why are you sacrificing so many things, Job? You don't even know if you've done, if you've done anything wrong. I can imagine him bringing lamb after lamb and ram after ram for each of his kids every time they have a party. How many is that? If they each had 10 of them, had 10 parties in a year with 10 children there and he was offering up a sacrifice for each one of them, it's about 100, you know, about 100. 100 animals went to the slaughter because Job wanted to make sure that his children were walking right before God. Do we seek to intercede for our children? Do we intercede for them? In other words, when we see our children, and not just our children, but our brothers and sisters, you see there's a principle involved here. When Cain said to God, am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that question was yes. You are your brother's keeper, Cain. Unfortunately, you went and did the opposite thing that you were meant to do. Cain was meant to be his brother's keeper, his protector, his guardian, the one who interceded for him if he made a mistake. This is our calling as Christians too. The Bible says that we are to be the priests of our generation. We are to stand in between God and the people in this world. We are to intercede for them and especially for each other. God has called us to be a kingdom of priests unto our God. Priests for who? Priests for everyone who needs supplication and intercession. We have been given a great privilege and in fact a great responsibility to forgive those people around us who sin. Especially our brothers and sisters who sin against us. Turn with me to Matthew 18.15. I want to show you, just share something with you and we're about to finish up. 
Now, most of us are familiar with how to discipline a brother who's gone astray in the church. And it says in Matthew 18, 15, it says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, in other words, if he commits a sin to offend you, okay, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Verse 17. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say, look at verse 18. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does that mean? What am I loosening and binding over here? Your brothers and sisters in the Lord. If your brother or sister comes to you and, and trespasses against you, you have the ability to forgive them. You have the opportunity to forgive them. And you know what God does when you forgive them? I think God forgives them too. I think God doesn't hold to their charge if we forgive them. Because why would he? Why would he hold something that we don't hold? When Jesus was dying on a cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. When Stephen was being stoned, he said, don't hold this charge to them. There are times in the Bible where the children of God are able to release people who have sinned against them from the wrath of God. Now let me ask you a question. When people sin against you, when people sin against you and do bad things against you, what does Jesus tell us to do? He tells us to pray for them and to love them. Now let me ask you a question. If you hold that sin against you, what are you hoping God's going to do? If you don't forgive, what are you hoping God's going to do? Pour out his wrath upon them? Because if you hold it, what you're saying is, God, I want you to fix them up. I can't fix them up right now, but I want you to fix them up for me. Let me ask you a question. Which spirit is that? You know when um, the disciples went into some of the towns and they rejected Jesus and James and John went to Jesus and they said, they've rejected us, Lord. Shall we rain down fire on them? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're even saying. Yet, Sometimes we hold grudges against people who have done things against us and we won't release them from that sin. We won't, we won't release them. The Bible says that we are to love them and to bless them and to pray for them. If you're praying and blessing and loving your enemies, then why don't we do it with each other? Job did it with his children. Job understood that he was, he was ready to intercede for his children if they sinned. Yet how often are we ready to jump in and say, Lord, forgive them. I know they've done this against me. I don't want you to hold it to them. There's a wonderful lesson we learn from our Saviour on the cross, who while he was being crucified said, Father, forgive them. Are we called to be any less? 
knife. In a way, Job is a wonderful picture of what Jesus did for us as believers. Jesus is still interceding for us today. You know, he, at, there was one stage when he was hung on a cross and he was, he was hung between heaven and earth and that blood covered us so that God's wrath didn't come down upon us. That was Jesus interceding. He was stepping in between God's wrath and me. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for him. And it says in Romans 8, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Our Saviour, he's still praying for us. Because when we mess up, he's wearing it. He's the one who is actually praying to the Father, forgive them. I'm going to intercede. My blood is enough to cover that. The question is, do we do the same? Do we have the same spirit in our lives to be a blessing to those people around us? Or are we too eager to hold on to the wrongs that people have done against us? When we are dealing with unsaved or with our brethren, let's be like Job. Let's be like Job who was ready to step in and say, I want to pray for that person. There may be something wrong, Father. I want to pray for them that you would heal them, that you would bring them back to and restore their fellowship. Let's seek to build one another up. Let's seek to forgive and love, especially in the household of God. Let's look at Job's godliness, his faith, and his faithfulness that he showed towards God and his family. Remember, there was a wonderful price that was paid for my salvation and for yours. Let's not throw it away by allowing bitterness and problems and sin to infest our lives. Let's clean up our act and let's begin helping to help other people clean up their act as well. Remember that. God bless you. Thank you.